I'm dermatologist and hair specialist, Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the February 21, 2022 issue, Season 1, Episode 3. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and is all about new research from the field of hair loss. It's created for all those who care for patients with hair loss and will be of interest too for all those who care about all the important issues relating to hair loss and the evidence behind it. Evidence-Based Hair is for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The third Monday of each month is dedicated to scarring alopecia, and we'll look today at several studies from the past month addressing the topic of scarring alopecia. We'll look at seven interesting studies. We'll look at the relationship between sunscreen and moisturizer use and FFA. We'll look at the use of NDEAG lasers for treating the facial veins in FFA. And we'll look at two interesting studies addressing male FFA. We'll look at drug-induced lichen planopilaris, specifically a drug nilotinib, which is approved for chronic myelogenous leukemia. We'll look at five genes in CCCA, or central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, that may confer an increased risk of women developing a more aggressive type of CCCA. And finally, we'll talk about the use of JAK inhibitors in folliculitis decalvans. The references for all of these studies are found at the bottom of this issue. Let's begin by talking about FFA or frontal fibrosing alopecia. FFA is an epidemic. It was relatively unheard of before 1994 when it was first described, but cases of FFA around the world have increased exponentially. The reasons are unclear, but it's thought that perhaps there's an environmental trigger that confers this increased risk. Some studies have suggested that perhaps some women have a genetic susceptibility, but when this environmental trigger is present, the two contribute to FFA. Again, the exact reasons are unclear, but the race is on to understand some of the environmental triggers that could potentially be responsible. A lot of attention has looked at sunscreens and moisturizers, some studies have suggested that sunscreens and moisturizers increase the risk of FFA. Some studies have suggested there is no association. So where are we at in 2022? Well, a very nice study published online in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology looked at the relationship between sunscreen use, moisturizer use, and FFA. The authors performed a systematic review with meta-analysis looking at this topic. So the authors evaluated all the currently published studies, looking at the association between FFA and sunscreens and moisturizers. Like all good systematic reviews and meta-analyses, authors need to have criteria for studies to include in their final analyses when they crunch the numbers. And so they identified nine studies that met their particular inclusion criteria. And in total, they had 1,248 patients with FFA 
and they compared this to 1,459 patients that were controls who didn't have FFA. The authors showed that sunscreen use was associated with a 2.21 increased risk of FFA and moisturizer use was similar with a 2.09 odds ratio. And so this study sort of highlights the continued need for all of us to continue to focus on this potential relationship. It doesn't prove it, but it certainly suggests that this is a relevant subject for us to keep studying. And we still don't know all the answers. We don't know why sunscreens or moisturizers would even be implicated in the first place. There's some thought that perhaps they confer uh, a risk via endocrine disruption. They affect hormones and hormone metabolism in the scalp. Perhaps there's an allergy component that's developing. Perhaps sunscreens block UV and block the um, immune activating or immunosuppressive effects of ultraviolet radiation. The reality is we don't know. We don't really know what to do with this data yet when we're in the clinic talking to patients. Some people, including myself, advise patients to keep sunscreens and moisturizers away from the hairline if they have FFA, to wear hypoallergenic sunscreens if at all possible. But the reality is we don't know if this is a good recommendation or not. This is our best guess based on all the evidence that we have in the present day. There's limitations to this particular study. Many of these studies are self-report studies, meaning that patients are in the waiting room or in the clinic filling out surveys. How much sunscreen do I use? How often do I use it? How much moisturizer do I use? And these are subject to recall bias. But nevertheless, I think this meta-analysis is very nice in that it supports that we can't stop looking at this data that perhaps there is some association between sunscreens and moisturizers, and we need to look at this issue in further detail. From studies looking at the risk of FFA, let's turn now to studies looking at treatment for FFA, specifically the treatment for facial veins. Many women with FFA have prominent facial veins, um, and this can be um, quite anxiety-provoking for many patients. These veins can be prominent in the temples and in the forehead. And treatments are somewhat limited because we don't fully understand why these veins occur. We don't fully understand how to treat them. It's thought that some patients develop these prominent facial veins because of thinning of the skin. And some women have thinning of the skin from overuse of topical steroids. But some women develop these facial veins without use of topical steroids at all. So it's clear that thinning of the skin or atrophy or prominent facial veins is very much a part of what FFA does. And so these authors set out to look at treatment for these facial veins with NDEAG laser. This was a study published online in the January issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. The authors identified 29 women with FFA that had prominent facial veins. The median age of patients was 58, and all 29 patients had prominence of the superficial temporal veins, 
uh, and I'll describe what that means in just a second. And 15 patients had prominence of the supratrochlear veins. Now, in case you don't know what the superficial temporal veins are, or you don't know what the supratrochlear veins are, I'll describe that now. Superficial temporal veins are veins in the temples at the sides. Um, and they can be seen above the ear, next to the side of the uh, eyebrow, uh, and of course in the temple area. The supratrochlear veins can be found in midline, and these connect with each other. And so this particular study from the Cleveland Clinic looked at the effect of ND Yeg laser on five women with prominent facial veins. Four patients had one treatment, and one, one patient had two treatments six months apart. And NDEG laser is a treatment that's often used for leg veins. And so it makes great sense to consider using this for the facial veins in FFA. The authors chose to treat the temporal veins, the superficial temporal veins with the NDEG laser. They didn't treat the supratrochlear veins because of the thought that treatment with NDEG of the supratrochlear veins may increase the risk of thrombosis or clots. And so the focus here was on the superficial temporal veins. And all five patients had a significant improvement in the size and the appearance of their facial veins. In many patients with small veins, they were no longer visible. And in some patients with larger veins, more than three millimeters, they decreased in size. And it was well tolerated, this procedure, uh, minimal pain. And so a really interesting study, which gives us new options for facial veins. We know that for some women, the use of finasteride and dutasteride can improve the facial veins. And egg laser may be another strategy to improve the facial veins. So this is a really important subject. The um, appearance of these facial veins is quite distressing for many women. Uh, hair loss itself is quite distressing. In the early stages, wearing the hair longer with bangs, etc., can camouflage some of the hair loss that accompanies FFA. The facial veins are very problematic for, for many women and quite distressing. And this is a really important study in our literature, which supports the use of NDEG laser, at least for these superficial temporal veins. And I think it's going to facilitate more study in this area. And I think it's a really nice study. Let's look at FFA in males and two particular studies addressing FFA in males. Do you see FFA in males? Are you missing FFA in males? When a patient comes in and says, my beard is thinner than it used to be, or a male patient comes in and says, I have leg hair loss. Is FFA on your radar? It perhaps should be. The two studies I'd like to highlight really encourage us to be thinking about uh, male FFA. It's certainly less common than female FFA, but it's probably increasing. And so a study published in the February issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology looked at FFA in 39 male patients. 
76.9% of patients had androgenetic hair loss. The mean age was 69, and patients had FFA for around seven years. What was very interesting is the beard hair, eyebrow hair, and body hair loss that was seen in males with FFA. Sideburn loss was present in 89.7%. Beard hair loss was present in three quarters. Eyebrow hair loss was present in 94.9% of patients. Body hair loss in 60%. 33% of patients had facial papules or these bumps on the face, forehead, temples, and depression of the forehead vein as groove was present in almost 13%. There were some other associations the authors identified in these 39 patients. 5% had hypothyroidism. Prostate enlargement was present in 33%. Prostate cancer in 15%. Now, those aren't really too different from what's expected in the general population. So when the authors aren't implying that there's this relationship between prostate enlargement or prostate cancer. But what was interesting is that three of the patients with prostate cancer had undergone treatment with hormone-blocking drugs, bicalutamide, gosarelin, and uh, triptorelin. And I think this is particularly relevant. Gosarelin is a synthetic analog of uh, LHRH, or luteinizing hormone-releasing hormone, and triptorelin is a GnRH agonist. Rosacea was found in 30% of these patients. And so an interesting study, which really highlights that beard hair loss is common. Leg hair loss is common. Eyebrow hair loss is common in these patients with FFA. Another study published in January in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology looked at the specific features of beard hair loss in males with FFA. And I think this is really important because it highlights that when males come in with concerns about beard hair loss, we certainly need to be thinking about FFA. We need to be thinking about alopecia areata. We need to be thinking about, um, you know, a multitude of things, irritation, allergy, but FFA needs to be on our list. And if we don't have it on our list, we're going to miss it. And so in this particular study, the lateral cheek was the most common area and all males had involvement of the lateral cheek. And there were 20 males in this particular study. 90% had sideburn loss, very similar to the prior study that I shared. 90% had hair loss in the mustache area. The very central mustache area was relatively uh, less common. Chin was also less common. And 70% of patients in this study had facial papules compared to 30% in the prior study. And so beard hair loss is very relevant. Body hair loss is relevant. Eyebrow hair loss is relevant. What are some key points that we can make so far? Well, there's been a number of studies looking at male FFA. Soon we'll be up to about a dozen. And there's several patterns that are emerging. And that is that androgenetic hair loss is, is common in a majority anywhere from 60, 70% of males. Beard hair loss, eyebrow hair, sideburn hair loss is common. And so loss of the sideburns must trigger you to think about FFA in males. Who knows how common facial papules are? 
but they're present. And so changes in texture bumps need to trigger one to think about FFA. Leg hair loss is often seen. Many patients come in with leg hair loss. We're not sure what to think. Is it friction? Is it vascular? Is it a ski boot? What's the cause? Please keep FFA on your list. Most males with FFA are healthy and most blood tests come back normal. We don't know what we should be testing, but perhaps we should be testing at least a thyroid and perhaps other tests as well based on history. And male FFA can occur in younger ages than in female FFA. So certainly you have to think about FFA in any age group that has the right clinical presentation, but FFA can affect young men. So you need a good history. You need to ask about medications. The reason I liked one of these studies that I presented today is it really highlights that some of these prostate cancer medications need to be on our radar. It's not proof by any means, but I think it's very relevant. And certainly I see patients with prostate cancer medications for whom I wonder if there's a relationship between their FFA and their prostate cancer medications, especially these GNRH analogs and LHRH analogs. It's not proof. We need more studies. You have to take a really good history because many patients with FFA have an autoimmune history. We know in women that there's an increased risk of vitiligo, lupus, psoriasis, so you need a good history. Beard hair loss and FFA is super common, and it can be one of the earliest changes in men. Certainly, eyebrow hair loss is pretty common in men as well. But when males come in with beard hair loss and no concerns about the scalp, you need to be thinking FFA. It might not be, but you need to be thinking FFA. There's two types of hair loss in men with FFA. One is patchy, like alopecia areata, and one is diffuse. Just the beard is thinner. Hey, doc, I can't grow my beard as thick as I used to. It's kind of thin. I used to have a great beard. Think FFA. You have to think about leg hair loss as well. That's really challenging. Biopsies of, of leg hair can be challenging. Um, first, we don't really understand fully what the histopathology is of, of hairs on the legs and arms, but uh, it can be a presenting issue in FFA. And don't be afraid to diagnose FFA in younger and younger male patients. It can be challenging when you have a receding hairline that is inflamed with seborrheic dermatitis to differentiate that from a receding hairline that's inflamed with follicular hyperkeratosis from FFA. But look at the eyebrows, look at the sideburns, look at the beard, look at the legs, look at the eyelashes. You can get a lot of information on whether you're missing a male patient with FFA and don't be afraid to biopsy and don't be afraid to perform two biopsies in challenging cases. The loss of sebaceous glands, the presence of lichenoid inflammation can certainly be suggestive of FFA. And don't be afraid to ask about genital lichen planus, genital lichen sclerosis in patients with FFA, both male and female. I think we're missing this a lot. I think it's way more common than we realize, and we need to ask. For now, the treatments for male FFA are pretty similar to female FFA topical steroids, steroid injections, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors like finasteride and dutasteride, retinoids like isotretinoin, 
tacrolimus, these are at the top of the list as first-line agents based on all the medical evidence. So from FFA, let's turn to LPP or lichen planopilaris. Lichen planopilaris is a scarring alopecia that presents with a red itchy scalp. When you look up close, you can see the scale around the hairs. You can see the redness. You can see that hairs are disappearing. There was two studies in January in different journals, which looked at the potential relationship between nilotinib and the development of lichen planopilaris. Now, nilotinib goes by the name Tasigna, and it's FDA approved for treating CML or chronic myelogenous leukemia. Um, CML is a type of cancer of the blood and the bone marrow, and it's characterized by having this translocation of chromosome 9 and 22. Chromosome 9 is supposed to stay by itself, and chromosome 22 is supposed to stay by itself. But in this CML cancer, the genetic material from these two chromosomes meet each other. That's called a translocation. And it creates this BCR-able oncogene, which drives the cancer. And there is drugs which block this tyrosine kinase. And so these tyrosine kinase inhibitors are the mainstay of treating CML. And imatinib or Glivac was uh, FDA approved in 2001 and revolutionized the treatment for CML, dramatically changed survival, dramatically changed people's lives. Nilotinib was approved in 2007 and Dasatinib was approved in 2017. Nilotinib and Dasatinib are 20 to 30 times more uh, potent than imatinib. And they not only block BCR-ABLE, but they block other enzymes and signaling pathways, including platelet-derived growth factor signaling and CKIT. And so this may be important. They're blocking other pathways, and this may predispose to some of the issues that we see, including the rare side effect of lichen planopilaris. And so a study by Gardelini and colleagues reported a 57-year-old woman with CML. She didn't do well with imatinib, and so she was changed to nilotinib. And nine months later, developed itchy skin, hair thinning, and worsening hair loss. And a skin biopsy of the scalp showed lichen planopilaris. The patient was treated with hydroxychloroquine, and the nilotinib was reduced. The hydroxychloroquine was used at 200 milligrams a day, a little bit lower than her maximally tolerated dose. And we'll get into the reason why in just a minute. It's potentially very relevant. The and colleagues reported in a different journal, a 32-year-old male with CML who was treated with nilotinib, 400 milligrams a day, and then developed diffuse hair loss, eyebrow loss, and follicular papules on the trunk and limbs. And a biopsy of one of the limbs, papules showed a lichenoid change. The patient was treated with topical steroids. And so there have been nine other studies in the medical literature, uh, nine patients, showing that nilotinib can rarely cause this hair follicle side effect. And when you look at all these nine patients that have been published before, you see that it's not all lichen planopilaris, that there's many effects on the hair that can occur. Some patients develop keratosis pilaris, 
bumps that are itchy. Some develop a non-scarring folliculitis and some develop what appears to be a lichen planopilaris-like change. So there's this spectrum of what nilotinib can cause rarely. Of course, it doesn't cause it in all patients. But it's very reminiscent of the Graham Little Bacardi Lassure syndrome, where patients can develop LPP of the scalp, a non-scarring type hair loss of other parts, um, as well as these follicular papules on the abdomen and, and other parts as well, which resemble keratosis pilaris. And so very interesting for us to know about. These side effects occur generally about one to three months after starting the drug when you look at all the studies. And stopping the drug isn't always possible. This is a life-saving drug for patients with CML. And so stopping the drug isn't an option, but treating the follicle reaction, the scarring alopecia or the keratosis pilaris is what we should be focused on. And studies in the literature have looked at doxycycline, topical steroids, topical retinoids, uh, as well as hydroxychloroquine in this study that I mentioned today. Hydroxychloroquine goes by the name Plaquenil. One of the things that the authors point out in this particular study is that they decided to use hydroxychloroquine, but they used it at a reduced dose. And the reason they used it at a reduced dose was they wanted to reduce the chance of heart side effects or changes in the QT interval. Now, the QT interval is a measurement on an EKG or an electrocardiogram, and it represents the time for the ventricles to contract and relax. And usually in males, the QT interval is less than 450 milliseconds. In women, it's less than 460 milliseconds. It's well known that rarely Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine can prolong the QT interval. And in some studies, Plaquenil increases the QT interval by about 10 milliseconds, not very significant for most people. But about 8% of people have a longer QT. And the reason we focus on QT intervals is that this interval on an EKG or an electrocardiogram gets more than 500 milliseconds, you have an increased risk for an arrhythmia or a heart rate abnormality called torsade de point. Now, these tyrosine kinase inhibitors like nilotinib and imatinib um, cause a prolongation of the QT interval in about a third of patients. And so when you use nilotinib, imatinib, you need to follow patients with an EKG to see if they're developing prolongation of the QT. And hydroxychloroquine can rarely affect the QT interval. And so the authors in this study that I presented performed serial EKGs to determine whether there was any change of the QT interval, how the heart is contracting and relaxing, and it wasn't. But I think we have to be careful before we encounter a patient with nilotinib and we remember that hydroxychloroquine was used in a study and we go and use hydroxychloroquine. We have to remember that prolongation of the QT and the chance for an arrhythmia is certainly there and we need to pay attention to that. And so topical steroids, steroid injections, doxycycline, uh, may be also considered. But if you're going to use uh, hydroxychloroquine, you might want to consider EKG follow-up assessments. 
So from LPP, we move to CCCA. CCCA is central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia. CCCA is one of the most common scarring alopecias in black women. Anywhere from 8 to 15% of black women can develop CCCA. It's very common. And we don't know all the factors that contribute to CCCA. But as we think about CCCA, I'd like you to think for a moment about a question. Here's the question. Do you like apples? Do you like apples? So for those of you who said, yes, I like apples, you might be what we call a lumper. For those of you who said, well, I like some apples, but I don't like Granny Smith's. I like Fuji and Empire and Gala and Honeycrisps. You might be what we call a splitter. So lumpers and splitters are two groups of people where lumpers kind of pool everything together and splitters kind of dissect things apart and think about things in different ways. The reason I mention this is I think splitters are really important in the field of hair loss. We don't know the causes of hair loss. In many cases, we only understand a very small fraction of what causes these hair conditions. So we need splitters in our field to be thinking about differences between things. Do you like apple pie? Well, I like warm apple pie. I don't like cold apple pie. I like apple pie with ice cream. I don't like apple pie with by itself. These are splitters. These are people that immediately think about differences between situations and scenarios. And so a study that I'd like to highlight is a study clearly by a splitter. This was a study which tried to identify some differences in gene expression between advanced aggressive CCCA and mild localized CCCA. And it was published in Experimental Dermatology in January. So they had 16 patients. They took punch biopsies from these patients and they subjected the biopsies to RNA isolation and then microarray micro analyses to try to identify the genes. There was 12 genes that were upregulated in CCCA at a significant level. And the authors tried to compare what genes are really being expressed in extensive aggressive CCCA compared to focal or limited CCCA. And they identified five genes that were significantly increased in patients with aggressive, rapid, extensive CCCA. This was MMP9, SRFP4, MSR1, LYZ, and NCKAP1L. These stand for matrix metalloproteinase 9, secreted frizzle-related protein 4, macrophage scavenger receptor 1, lysozyme, and NCK-associated protein-like. So these are five genes that are increased in patients with advanced CCCA. And this study was really one of its kind, looking at genes that may be relevant to advanced CCCA. Some patients with CCCA develop hair loss rapidly. And no matter what you do, they go on to lose hair quickly and you need more and more aggressive therapies. 
Other patients with CCCA have their disease stop quickly or it moves only slowly. So what are the differences between these two groups? Well, this was what this study set out to do. So MMP9, MSR1 are thought to have a role in fibrosis. SFRP4 is a modulator of the Wnt signaling pathway, which is a key mediator of hair follicle development. It has a role in wound healing and fibrosis. LYZ was a bit of a surprise for these authors. It's an antimicrobial agent, and it has some role maybe in the innate immune system. NCK-associated protein like one gene has a role in neutrophil migration, phagocytosis, lymphocyte developments. And when you have defects, you get hyperinflammation and immunodeficiency. So it's not clear what exactly these are doing. But an important study that suggests that severe extensive CCCA might be very distinct than mild CCCA. And so the way that I think about it is that perhaps we are turning the corner for personalized medicine, as people like to call it, that perhaps someday you'll be able to assess the genes in the scalp and a patient that has high MMP9, MSR1, SRFP4, you might be able to predict from the get-go that they're at high risk for aggressive disease. And maybe we need to treat more aggressively from the beginning. Don't send them home with topical corticosteroids. Send them home with topical corticosteroids, steroid injections, doxycycline, topical tacrolimus. But there may be other patients with lower expression of these genes that you can predict from the get-go that they're at lower risk for advanced hair loss. And perhaps you send them home with topical clobetazole and topical minoxidil, and they do great. We don't know, but this study highlights the differences between these two conditions, aggressive CCCA and mild CCCA. And I think it's a really wonderful study that sends us in the right direction to be thinking about some of these genes controlling scarring alopecia. And finally, we turn to folliculitis decalvans. Some folliculitis decalvans is easier to treat than others. Folliculitis decalvans is a, a neutrophilic scarring alopecia where patients develop red bumps and pustules that are itchy and sometimes bleed, sometimes in the crown, sometimes in the middle of the scalp. Topical antibiotics, oral antibiotics, oral retinoids can be used to treat many patients with folliculitis decalvans, but not everyone responds to these treatments. So what can be done for more aggressive or refractory forms of folliculitis decalvans? A study in the Australasian Journal of Dermatology in January looked at this very question. They looked at the role of the JAK inhibitor baricitinib in treating refractory folliculitis decalvans or tough to treat folliculitis decalvans. This was Dr. Sinclair's group from Australia, and they've been studying JAK inhibitors in folliculitis decalvans for a few years now. And in 2020, they showed that the JAK inhibitor tofacitinib was helpful in stubborn refractory folliculitis decalvans. And so in this study, they looked at the role of baricitinib. Tofacitinib is an inhibitor of JAK1 and JAK3, and to a lesser extent, JAK2, but baricitinib is an inhibitor of JAK1 and 2. 
And so they described four patients with refractory folliculitis decalvans that improved with baricitinib, anywhere from 3.4 milligrams to 6.8 milligrams daily. Patient one was 50, had folliculitis decalvans for eight years. Patient two was 67, had folliculitis decalvans for five years. Patient three was 33, had folliculitis decalvans for 17 years. And patient four was 32 and had folliculitis decalvans for 10 years. So long histories of resistant refractory folliculitis decalvans. So the authors described that when they added baricitinib, to the standard treatment, whether topical steroids, oral antibiotics, minoxidil, other recognized treatments, they improved and they improved quickly. And an improvement of symptoms was noted in anywhere from one to three months. When the dose of baricitinib was reduced for two of the four patients, a flare occurred. And so folliculitis decalvans can be treated with JAK inhibitors in refractory cases. It's certainly an option, probably a, what I would call a third-line option. It doesn't put it at the top of the list for all patients. Oral antibiotics, oral retinoids, topical steroids are still at the top of the list. But tofacitinib and baricitinib, these JAK inhibitors, are very much part of the treatment algorithm for refractory disease. And that's it for this week, everyone. To recap, we talked about the relationship between sunscreens and FFA and the systematic review which showed about a two-fold increased risk of FFA in, in sunscreen users and moisturizer users. We talked about the NDEG laser to treat facial veins, specifically the superficial temporal veins in women with FFA. We talked about male FFA, the changes in the beard, the sideburns, the eyebrows, the leg hair that are so common. We talked about this interesting association between nilotinib and lichenplano pilaris. We talked about five genes that seem relevant to aggressive CCCA. And we talked about the use of baricitinib for refractory folliculitis decalvans. I wanna thank you for listening to this episode of Evidence-Based Hair. Let us know what you think of our content. Please rate or comment wherever you're listening. And if you want to connect with our office to learn more about our training programs or to send us any comments, you can email us at info at donovanhairacademy.com. Next week, we're back for the fourth Monday of the month, addressing a whole mixture of different studies from the last month or two that are relevant for all of us to know. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back on Evidence-Based Hair.